Lord, that is our prayer tonight, that you would renew a right spirit within each one of us. Father, I pray that you would just open our eyes and open our hearts to your word, to your truth, to your love, to your grace, and also, Lord, to the areas of our lives that need to change, or we need to die, where there needs to be less of us and more of you. Lord, we pray for our time in the word tonight, that you would be our teacher, and again, for the sake of your people, use this marred and imperfect vessel that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel. It's great to have you here. I really hope you feel welcome. If it's your first time here, you know, Calvary Chapel, we don't have membership. We're just a big family, amen? If we have Jesus in common, we have everything in common. So if you come to church here, you're a part of it. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 14, continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand because you're going to need one, amen? Raise your hand, you'll need a Bible. And we're going to continue just picking up where we left off last week, and I'm going to take a few moments to catch you up. So if you're here new for the first time, or or you just don't remember from last week, which is probably half of you, right? It's always good to remind you, right? Tell you what you're going to what we what we've talked about repeatedly. I said that one time to somebody. They go, "Why did you do so much review?" I said, "I was a youth pastor for a long time, but then I found out that adults don't remember all that much more than youth do anyway." Amen. So that's where we're going to go over it again. So Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. Moses is reaching out and speaking to that next generation that is about to enter into the land of promise. The first generation died in the wilderness because of the rebellion against God. And now he's telling the next generation all that had happened to them previously. The first ten chapters, he emphasized everything that had happened to the previous generation to be a lesson to this generation. And so he's sharing with them how they, God had delivered them mightily, how he had parted the Red Sea, how he dropped manna from the sky, you know, how he led them by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, and, and how he defeated the enemy, and all the things that God did for them, and he reminded them of what God had done. Now many understand in that next generation were small children when this happened, so he's reminding them, and also some had not even been born. So he's preparing that next generation, reminding them first of all God had done for them. But then he also reminded them of all the rebellion that that previous generation had fallen into. They first rebelled against God. If you'll remember that right after God spoke from Mount Sinai, when God spoke, they were so blown away, they said, don't let him talk anymore or we're going to die. Moses, you go talk to him and you come back down and tell us what he says. We've heard him once, that's enough. Because when God spoke, the earth shook. And we know what happened as he went up on Mount Sinai just days after he said, what were the first two commandments? Thou shalt have no other gods before me, and thou shalt serve no graven image. Those are the first two things that, that God spoke to them. What did they do? Just days after he went up, they made a golden calf. And they began to dance around it, and they were drunken, and they had sexual immorality. It was out of control. And Moses comes down and sees it. And so he reminds them that, you know what? The previous generation, though God was with them, they still chose to rebel against him. And they missed out on God's highest. Not only did they rebel against God there, they tried to overthrow Moses repeatedly. If you guys remember Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and 250 men of, of renown came against Moses. And what did God do? He opened up the earth and swallowed some of them, and the other ones he smoked with fire. You know what? You don't want to come against God's man, amen? He came against Moses, and Moses was outnumbered three million to one. I've told you this repeatedly. This guy was pastoring the worst church ever. Three million whiners. Whoa, three million of them, right? Talk about church growth. He wanted church reduction, right? 
Lord, just take some of them out, right? And so what happened, we know that, again, that because of their rebellion against God, they missed out on God's highest, and they had a selective memory. They wanted to go back to Egypt after a while. You guys remember that? Oh, they had leeks and onions. I want to go back to Egypt. And it's kind of like we are with our old sinful past. God's delivered us from sin, and we, oh, man, that was great when I used to party, man. I missed that, right? You know, we remember the party, we forget the puking and the headaches and the, you know, the DUIs and all the other garbage that comes with it. And it's that selective memory, and that's how they were. Because again, they were so easily taking their eyes off God and putting their eyes on their circumstances in the world. Then they rejected God's command. God told them clearly, go into the land of promise. Go. I've already taken care of it. It belongs to you. They got there, and what did they do? Oh, there's giants in the land. We can't go, Right? You know, God commands you to do something, and you look at your circumstances, oh I, can't, oh, I can't do it. Wait a minute, aren't you glad that there's people like David who fought Goliath? David didn't say he's 11 foot 750 like everybody else. Oh man, right? David said, who's this uncircumcised Philistine that comes against my God? And sadly, though, this generation looked and saw the giants in the land, and God said, I've already wiped them out, just go take it. And they didn't go. So that generation turned an 11-day march, 11-day journey into a 40-year death march, and they all died in the wilderness. And so for 10 chapters of Deuteronomy, he's reminding them of Israel's rebellion, their rejection, and their refusal to enter into the land of promise. Now when we get to chapter 11, finally what starts to happen there is he begins to prepare them for what's in front of them. The first 10 chapters are what was what behind them that they could learn from, and then he's preparing them for what's before them. And in chapter 11, the focus of the message, again, was what the mistakes that happened in the past, but he talked to them about the blessings of obedience. You've seen the, the, what, the fruit of disobedience. You've seen what happened to the previous generation. You saw your moms and dads die in the wilderness while you walked around, and everybody was dropping dead around you for 40 years. And you saw that happen, but now it's important to understand the blessings of obedience, when we're, obedience, when we're obedient, God is glorified and we get blessed. And we're disobedient, we break fellowship with God and His name is harmed because we're His children. And so he says very clearly the blessings of obedience. If you will obey, then God will prolong your days in the land of promise. He'll pour out your, His blessings upon you. He'll bless your children. He'll defeat the enemies that come before you. And he ended basically with choose today whom you're going to serve. Honor God and be blessed. Then he told them about one true worship two weeks ago in chapter 12. And he said, there's only one way. There's only one way. And you know, people come today and they say, well, I've got my own way of worshiping. I worship God in my own way. No, you don't. You may think you do, but it's not worshiping God if you do it your way. Amen? God sets the rules. He's God. You're not. Amen? Un, uh, you know, regardless of what the Mormons might tell you or somebody else, you will never be God. Amen? There is only one God, and He's the one that makes the rules. He says, when you go into the land of promise, I want you to wipe out all the high places. I want you to destroy all the idols. I want you to just destroy it completely so no one's tempted to go back there later and reinstitute that worship. He said, I tell you how to worship. You worship me alone. You come to the tabernacle, and you must come with the sacrifice of the blood of the Lamb. You must come in the way that I've, I've instructed you. Now, why was that so important? Because every Old Testament sacrifice pointed to whom? To Jesus. And as soon as you start worshiping another way, you're taking Jesus out of the equation. And when you take Jesus out of the equation, there is no salvation. Amen? Now, it's interesting that it's real popular today. You know, I was just uh, reading on the internet that, 
You know, the largest church in America now is pastored by this guy who says, I'm never going to say anything negative, ever. Because if I do, you know, and I just want it uplifting, and I want to have people reach their potential. You know what? I want people to reach heaven. Amen? Not the potential they have in their own, oh, man, if I just, I want to, I want to just give them, you know, man, you know, we don't need that. We need Jesus. Amen? We need to realize we're sinners in desperate need of a Savior. You come here once, you're going to hear that you're a sinner. Amen? Because you are, and so am I. And we desperately need Jesus Christ. And you know what? That's what we need to be crying out for and hungering for is the Lord. And so he clearly tells them God's plan for worship, and you need to obey and do things God's way, not yours. And then last week, the title of the message was, What Does God Think About Other Religions? If you were here last week, God's very clear about what he thinks about other religions. He said, you know what, if a prophet comes to you, and and even if he performs great miracles and then says, let's go serve this other God, what were you supposed to do to him? Kill him. That's pretty clear. Take him out and stone him with stones until he dies. I think you'd get the point. Then it says, but what if somebody in your family quietly says to you, well, you know, that pastor at the church we're going to, he's, you know, I don't like his right shirts. Maybe we should go somewhere else. You know what I mean? Maybe we should go somewhere else in worship. But in this case, he said, you know, what did they say? Well, you know, Moses and God, you know, but man, I like the drumbeat of the Baal worshipers down the way. Let's go down and check them out. What did he say to do to even someone in your own house that tried to get you to go worship another God? What did he tell them to do? Kill them. God's pretty clear what he thinks about other religions and other gods. This whole thing of, well, there's many paths to God. That's true. There's many paths because everything leads to God, but there's only one that leads to heaven. Amen? They're all going to end up bowing and, and confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, but there's only one that leads to heaven. And we don't want to mess around with, you know, oh, well, I'm kind of checking out. There's some things about Buddhism that I like. And, you know, I kind of like, a, you know, we're of the Baha'i faith, which is the biggest joke ever, by the way. If you've got that background, God bless you, you've been delivered from it. If you still think that's a good answer, let's talk, okay? Because the Baha'i faith says all religions are good which is foolishness. That's like saying one plus one is two, and one plus one is five, and one plus one is nine, and one plus one is 11, and they're all true. That's stupidity. What they're saying is that, well, I believe in part of Buddhism and part of of the Muslim faith and part of the New Age movement. I bring them all together. Well, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. You can't add that with anything else. Amen? You can't have reincarnation and the cross. They don't both work. And sadly, even the Quaker church here in town said, you're as likely to hear about Buddha here as you are Jesus. You know, we need more churches just to teach the Bible. Amen? And so we see here that his passion was, if they start talking about other gods, kill them. And he said, if there's a city nearby, and you find out that they're worshiping other gods, what were they supposed to do? Go into the city and do what? Kill everybody. How does God feel about other gods and other religions? Oh, it's, it's okay, you know, as long as you're sincere, you're sincerely wrong. You can be as sincere as you want thinking one plus one is five. You can be as sincere as you want thinking there is no gravity. I don't believe in gravity. I don't believe in gravity. You step off a 10-story building, no matter how sincere you are or how much you believe, you're going to splat on the sidewalk, right? And so sincerity for a lie is not going to help you. And so he's making it so very clear. Look, these false gods wipe them out. But you know why? Because he knew the temptation of the children of Israel would be to follow after the gods that surrounded them. And the same is true for you and I. We become like those we hang out with. Amen? You start hanging out with worldly people, you're going to start compromising your faith. 
You're going to start thinking it's, well, you know, maybe a few drinks is okay. Well, maybe doing that's all right. Maybe that's not so bad over here. All those Christians need to relax a little bit. You know, and before you know it, bad company corrupts good morals. And he knew that that was the case. And he told them if there's a city nearby. And not only that, he wanted them to make an example of that city. Because he told them to take everything in the city, destroy all the cattle, destroy everything. Then he said, put all the spoils in a pile and light it on fire. And then leave it there. And the word there was put it in a heap. And the word for heap in Hebrew is tell. And if you go to Israel today, there's tells everywhere. Heaps of ruined civilizations. Most of whom got clear judgment directly from God for turning their back upon him. It's only by God's grace there isn't a tell in California today. Amen? It's only by God's grace that we continue to be here. So tonight we're going to continue looking at God's commands for his children to be set apart from the world, to worship God alone as a holy and set apart people, that their relationship with God should impact every aspect of their life, not just Sunday morning for an hour and Wednesday night for an hour. It should impact everything they do 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And he said, he's going to go over to three more areas of life. He's going to continue to go through them through the rest of Deuteronomy. And now we're going to go into three more areas where he's telling them that your life should be impacted because of who you are. You're a holy people. You're a holy nation. You're set apart to God. Do you know that's no less true of you and I today? We are holy because he's holy. Amen? We are saints Saint is not a dead person who performed a bunch of miracles and got voted on by the Vatican, all right? What is a saint? The word saint means sanctified or set apart one. And you know what? You're either a saint or an ain't, amen? You've either been born again or you haven't. And if you've been born again, you're a saint. And so God set you apart and God has a plan for your life and he wants to use you in every aspect of your life. And so tonight we're going to look at three more areas. God's command in the area of how we mourn. God commands us about how we are to mourn as Christians and how different it should be from the world. He talks to them about their diet. Now, I believe the greater application we're going to see is he's telling them to have a diet that would keep them separated from the world. But even more importantly to us, even though our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, I believe he tells us that we should take good care of it. At the same time, I believe he's instructing us to trust God even when we don't understand. Because when he laid out this diet to Israel... There's no doubt they wondered why, but we're going to see why as we go through it. And then finally, he talks to them about the area of giving. If you've never been to this church before, I say it a lot, we don't talk to giving here here unless it's in the text. We don't pass an offering here. We believe where God guides, God provides, and he always has. You know, and that's just our heart. We don't charge for tapes. We don't charge for Bibles. Why? Because we, we should never charge for the word of God. Amen? But I do believe the Bible teaches us about giving, and we're going to see that tonight. So if you want to leave, go ahead, all right? All right, now, I titled the message, Living All Your Life for the Lord. Living all of your life for the Lord. Not just some of it, not I surrender some, right? I surrender all, amen? Giving everything you have to the Lord. And so we're going to first see that we are to be a holy people, set apart to God, and we're to be a generous and a giving people. So let's begin, looking at the first two verses, and God's heart for the children of Israel, that they were to be different in the way that they mourned, different than all of their pagan neighbors, to stand out even in the way they mourn over death. Look at verse 1. You are the children of the Lord your God. You know, this is a good reminder. You need to remember who you are every day. You're a child of the King. Amen? 
You're a child of the King. You know, God put it on my heart years ago to start my day a certain way. And every day, for the most part, maybe I miss a day once in a while, but for the most part, it's an automatic with me that when I wake up in the morning, the first thing that happens is I put my arm up and I say, yes, Lord. Because I want my first thought, my first words, my first everything. I got it from Samuel, right, when Samuel was a little boy and he said, you know, he responded to the Lord. And that's my heart, is that I would begin with the first words out of my mouth being focused on God. Beginning my day with Him. Remembering who I am and why I live and why I breathe and what life is all about. And that's what he's telling them first is you guys. Remember who you are. You are the children of the Lord your God. And as children, they were to have a different perspective on every aspect of life. They were to live lives of faith and hope and joy in the very presence of God, assured in His promises, as an example to the world around Him. And there's no difference for you and I today. God's called us to live lives of hope and joy and peace. Amen? As Christians, we shouldn't look like we've been sucking on lemons. Right? Oh, yeah, I'm Christian. Right? That should not be happening. My best friend created the universe. I'm going to heaven. And so he reminds them of who they are. Let me remind you who you are. You're children of the king. But look what he says next. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave the front of your head for the dead. Now, what is this talking about? One of the areas was the difference in perspective about death. In the morning for the dead, and every one of our lives has been touched by it, everyone, and it hasn't yet, it will be. Because one out of every one person dies, amen? And unless we're raptured or God snatches us away beforehand, we're all going to die. And how we respond to death should be completely different from the way the world responds to death. Now what would happen in these these pagans, they were so torn up about death that they literally would start to cut themselves and gash their heads and gash their their bodies. Do you remember the prophets of Baal when they were trying to get Baal to pay attention to them? Oh, how we wound ourselves for you as they just cut themselves up. And that still happens in many pagan nations today where they cut themselves up. They try to wound themselves to somehow get God's attention or to show their grieving. But the Bible tells us that you and I as Christians are not to respond that way to death. Why? Because Christians die well. And for us, it's simply moving day to a much better address. Amen? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we should not... We grieve because we're going to miss our loved ones, but we do not grieve as those without hope. Now, I've done funerals for believers, and I've done them for unbelievers. And can I tell you that when that casket gets dropped down into the ground and people start to realize, this is it. I'm not even going to be able to touch the casket anymore. People that don't know God and people that don't understand eternity, I mean the wailing and the out-of-control mourning. But I've been there with believers And while there are tears because we miss those, we also know it's not goodbye, it's see you soon. Amen? And next time I see you, you're not going to be sick anymore. There's going to be no more pain and no more suffering and no more death. And you know what? When we get there, we're going to be around the throne of God forevermore. And I'll tell you what, it's not goodbye. It's not, oh, and just weeping and mourning and cutting ourselves up. It's like, it's God is faithful and God is in control. And do you know the way you respond when people in your family die is a testimony to everybody around you? Unbelievers don't get it. Aren't you just tore up? I mean, your dad died. What are you going to do? How can you go on living? Hey, my dad doesn't want to come back here. Do you understand that? My dad, and by the way, oh, I'm sorry to hear you lost your dad. I didn't lose him. I know exactly where he is. Amen? He's not lost. 
He's in heaven. Amen. We, oh, sorry to hear that you lost him. He's in heaven. And so as believers, we should respond totally different than the world. Now, should we weep? You know, Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Now, I believe he was weeping over, the, over sin's consequences on the world. He saw them weeping. They said, oh, how he loved Lazarus. So, of course, we weep. doesn't mean you have to walk around. I'm a Christian. I can't cry. I'm gonna, you know, no. We weep, but we don't grieve as those without hope. Amen? Because there's a day coming soon when we'll never have to say goodbye again. We'll be around the throne of, of, of God forevermore. And I'm going to be arm in arm with my grandfather who's gone before me. My best friend from high school, one of my best friends from high school who died when I was 19 years old. Who Both of them love the Lord and I'm going to see them again. And we're going to worship the Lord forevermore. So as Christians, we don't respond with the same mourning that the world does. And again, they just are tore up. There's no more hope. For them, it's the end. For them, this is it. For us, it's the beginning. We're going to be dead a lot longer than we're alive. Amen? This life is but a vapor in comparison to eternity. So we're, you know, we're living for the dash. You go to tombstones, what do they have? They have a date when you were born, for me, 1963. And if, the Lord, if I die, they'll have another date, and we're living for all this, this little dash in the middle. And it's but a vapor in comparison to the horizon of eternity. And so while the world mourns and the world is unconsolable and the world is out of control, we should grieve, but not as those without hope. Amen? And do you know it's an incredible testimony to the world when you have hope in the midst of death? Because as we saw on Sunday, death, where is your sting? There is no sting for the believer. Amen? It's gone. He's triumphed over it. Now what they would do is they would cut themselves or they would make these large bare spots between their eyebrows to show that they were grieving. And he said, don't do that. You're different. You're not to be like them. In Leviticus, he said, You shall not round the corners of your heads, neither shall you mark the corners of your beard. You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor print any marks upon you. I am the Lord. Again, for the unbelievers, it's the end, but not for us. In 1 Thessalonians, it says this, But I do not want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. That's not us. Amen? Christ is my hope. Christ is my salvation. And you know what? I have total peace in the midst of everything that's going on around me because I'm going to leave suffering behind. I'm going to leave this world behind one day. And Christians die well because we view death differently. Verse 2. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. Again, the word holy means separated or set apart. Set apart from all other people, devoted to worship and serve God alone, representing Him to a lost and dying world. Therefore, we should not be conformed to the customs of this world in mourning, in worship, and as we will see in a moment for them in, the, in their diet. God was using things to keep them separated from the world. You know, why is it so important that we have fellowship? Forsake not the gathering yourselves together, and all the more as the day approaches. We're to spend more and more time together as we get closer and closer to Christ's return. Not less and less time. I've had people say, well, you know, I go to church once a week, that's enough. You know, the Bible says we desire the Word of God more than our necessary food. Amen? How many guys eat once a week? I know better than that, right? And so we need to be in fellowship because we need to be encouraged and we need to use the gifts we've been given to minister to others and we need to let others use their gifts to minister to us. We watch TV seven nights a week. Why can't, we be, why can't we fellowship that often? Amen? 
And to all we think somehow it's a drudgery, it's a get-to, it's not a have-to. And we are holy unto the Lord. We're set apart unto Him. And the Lord has chosen you to be the people for Him, for Himself. A special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Israel was God's treasured possession. You know what God's treasured possession is today? It's you. The Bible says you are that precious, you are His treasured possession. You are His heavenly inheritance. Does this blow your mind? The God that can create anything, the God that can have anything, what does He treasure? You. How you determine the value of something, what somebody is willing to pay for it. How much was paid for you? This much. How valuable are you to God? He would rather die than live without you. Amen? And that's who we are in His eyes. That's who we are in His sight. How precious we are to the Lord. So in living your life for the Lord, it should impact the way we mourn. Grieve, but not as those without hope. And the children of Israel were to be different, and you and I are to be different today. Now the children of Israel also to be different in their diet. Now Moses is repeating rules for Israel that he had previously communicated to them back in Leviticus chapter 11. And I want to say this briefly, that God does care about your diet. God does care about what you eat. He wants you to be a good steward of, that, of the temple of the Holy Spirit that you're walking around in. Amen? That doesn't mean you can never eat anything sweet or you can't, you know, right? But just, the Bible says everything in moderation, right? And I, I believe it's God's design that we would be good stewards of our bodies. Initially, at the beginning of humanity, back in Genesis, all the animals and, and human beings were all vegetarians. Did you know that? All of us were vegetarians. All humankind was vegetarians. Because prior to sin, there was no death. So they weren't killing anything. Now, what was the first animal that was killed? The first animal that was killed was after Adam and Eve sinned, and it says that God killed, a, an, a, killed animals to make tunics for them. The first time that blood was shed was for the covering of sin, a representation, again, of the cross itself. And so after that point, he, he began to allow them to eat meat. Then later, after the flood of Noah, they were able to, again, eat, any, uh, eat all kinds of meat, but they were not to eat it in its blood. They were able to eat every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. But now he's giving them dietary restrictions. And here's two reasons, why, and then we're going to look at them. Number one was to separate them from the world. And number two was to protect them from disease. Now what you must understand is back then, you know, they didn't understand you know, botulism. They didn't understand how you could get sick from eating food that wasn't prepared right. And so what God did instead was, He just made, He, he didn't give them the reasons why. Look, He said, eat this because this is what's best for you. Honor me, these other foods are unclean. Now in doing so, He was protecting them from being sick and, being, and, and dying. And He was also keeping them away from the world because the world ate all the other stuff and they couldn't really hang out with them because their diets were totally different. Do you remember Daniel? Daniel gets taken into captivity in Babylon, and the first thing that happens is he says, I can't eat this because the law of Moses forbids it. He knew that I need to honor God in that which I take into my mouth. And so, while we have liberty today to eat whatever we want, we should still do that which is good for our bodies. Now look what it says there, verse 3. You shall not eat any detestable thing. Detestable in Hebrew is a word that means uh, morally aberrant or disgusting, especially things set aside for idolatry. 
So they were not to eat anything that was forbidden or unclean. And now he's going to repeat to them what he'd already said in Leviticus 11. And look at verses 4 through 6. These are the animals which you may eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roe deer, the wild goat, the mountain goat, the antelope, and mountain sheep. And you may eat every animal with cloven hooves, having the hoof split into two parts, and that choose the cud among the animals. Now, I've had people ask me this before. Why do you guys, you know, because like, I've talked to people, I, I had a guy I worked with one time who was Vietnamese, and they ate dog. I'm like, dude, I don't, I'm not tracking with the dog program. And he's like, well, what's up with you guys? I've got to chew the cud and have a divided hood. What's up with that, right? And if you look at it at the surface, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. What difference does it make? Well, God told us to, Amen. That's why. Now, we're, we know that those dietary laws have changed in Acts chapter 10. But I want to tell you some real clear things that, that I believe we see here. Some clear applications. Now, what's interesting about these clean animals? They had cloven hooves, which means their hoods were divided. And they chewed their cud, which is actually kind of disgusting. Chewing cud means you eat it, you swallow it, and then you barf it back up and chew it some more. That's the truth. That's what it means. But what's interesting is that chewing the cud, the word there that's used for that is the word meditate. And so they were to have divided hooves and they were to chew up the food and and swallow it right so they'd have better digestion and better nourishment. So this cleanliness was determined by how the animal walked and how the animal ate. Determine which animals were clean and which ones were unclean. So their walk was to be divided, right? They had cloven hooves, the divided hooves, hooves that were set apart. Romans 8 says this, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ, who walk not according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. In Romans 13 it says, Let us walk becomingly as in the day, not in carousings and drinking, not in cohabitation and lustful acts, not in strife and envy. In Galatians it says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. As believers filled with the Holy Spirit, you and I should have a divided walk. A walk that is set apart to God. And the, the way that these animals walked and the, what they walked on was divided. And it's not by chance that we too need to have a divided walk. Now you might say, okay, alright, I, I can see that. So what's up with chewing the cud? I don't get that. Well again, the word there is meditate. And in Joshua 1.8 it says, this is the book of the law. And it shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe and do all according to that which is written. In Psalm 1, it says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. So cleanliness, or holy animals, were determined by how they walked. They had a divided walk. They were set apart. And how he ate, meditating and regurgitating and chewing it over and over again. The Bible says we're to desire the Word of God more than our necessary food. So the clean animals were a picture, again, of meditation and a divided walk. Now what about the unclean animals? Let's look at verse 7. Nevertheless, of all those that chew the cud or have cloven hooves, you shall not eat such as these, the camel, the hare, the rock hyrax, For they chew the cud, but they do not have cloven hooves, so they are unclean for you. So it wasn't good enough if they just chewed their cud, and it wasn't good enough if they just had cloven hooves. And you know what, guys? It's not good enough 
if we just have a set-apart walk, and it's not good enough if we just meditate on the Word of God. We must meditate on the Word and have a set-apart walk. We can't just live moral lives and disregard the Word, and we can't just read the Word and have it not impact our lives. And so he said, you cannot eat these animals that have cloven hooves, just like a person can't just live a moral life and get into heaven. It's not good enough to only meditate on the Word and not live a life set apart to God. It's not good enough to have lives where we live morally, but we don't spend time in the Word. Now it's interesting that the camel was the largest of all the unclean animals. Do you remember the analogy or the parable or the illustration the Lord used with the Pharisees? He said, you guys strain at a what? At a gnat, which is the smallest of the unclean animals, an insect, but you swallow a what? A camel. He said, you guys are straining at the smallest little detail and you're swallowing whole the largest of all the unclean animals. And so camels were not to be eaten. Now it's interesting that those who ate camels, doctors said there's high cases of intestinal disease for those who eat camel. So you shouldn't eat camels and you shouldn't smoke them either. Amen? No camels. Right? They chew the cud. Don't have a uh, right? No divided walk. Again, for you and I as believers, not good enough to only meditate on God's Word. It needs to impact the way we live our lives. Now, Read the rest of it. I'm sorry. Youth pastor in me, what can I tell you? Verse 8. Also the swine is unclean for you. Now I'm glad that Acts chapter 10 took place. I have to confess because I like bacon. But let me read this. Also the swine is unclean for you because it has cloven hooves, yet does not chew the cud. You shall not eat their flesh or touch their dead carcasses. Now, the swine had a, quote, divided walk, but didn't meditate, you know, again, a picture of meditating on the Word. So it's not good enough to have a moral life, but not know what the Word of God says. You know, a lot of people say that to me, but Pastor Dave, they're such good people, right? You ever heard that? You've thought it, haven't you? I've thought it. I was driving back, my wife and I went for our 20th anniversary recently to Mexico, and we're riding back in this van to the airport with this newlywed couple, and they were two of the sweetest people in the world, but in talking to them, they had no idea who God was. And it just broke my heart. And we, of course, I shared the Lord with them and found out they're both Muslims. And it was sad. So I'm praying for them. I continue to pray for them. But the hard part is that sometimes we look at people and we try to say, well, they've got a, a set-apart walk. They've got a divided walk. So that should be good enough. How many times a day does a good man sin? If a good man only sinned three times a day, I haven't met that person yet. But if they only sin three times a day, it's probably going to add a few zeros to that. But if they only sin three times a day, your thought, law, your thought life, your, the words that come out of your mouth, the things that you meditate on, the things that distract you, setting your eyes on the world instead of God. If you only sin three times a day, that's roughly a thousand times a year. If you live to be 75, that's 75,000 sins. If you're the best person I've ever met. And if you came before a judge with 75,000 crimes, what's going to happen to you? If God allows one sin in heaven, he's got what? He's got earth part two. He's got earth all over again. There can't be any sin in heaven. And so it's so clear that it's important that we not just live moral lives, that we not just have a divided walk, that we not just be better than other people. God grades on a curve. I'm no Osama bin Laden. I'm sure I'll get in, right? No, it's having a relationship with the Lord. It's meditating on the Word. It's being born again and then living a divided walk that's fruit of it. 
So they were not to eat swine, and that's a good thing because back in those days, pork that was not thoroughly cooked, and it's still true today, you get trigonosis, which is worms. We don't want that, right? And so this was actually for their health as well. And he's telling them it's not good enough to live a good moral life. And, and they don't fully grasp it. They don't fully grasp the health hazards. But God wants us to just learn to trust him even when we don't get it. Amen? You read the Bible sometimes, you go, why does he make us do that? You probably say that more about your parents, right? I got teenagers. Why does dad think I need to do that, right? But it's because I love them and I know what's best for them. And the same is true of God. Verse 9 and 10. These you may eat of all that are in the waters. You may eat all that have fins and scales. And whatever does not have fins and scales you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. So the clean fish are the ones based on how they moved. And those that moved around in the water freely were the ones that were clean. They were not to eat eels and bottom feeders, lobster, shellfish, crab. Now a lot of you are going, praise God for Acts chapter 10, right? Rice, kill, and eat, so now we can eat everything. But you know what, though? They ate things off the bottom, and they collected disease. That, you know, I had a friend tell me that, that, that lobsters are the cockroaches of the ocean. I'm like, dude, why'd you got to? I used to like that stuff. But they do. They, they, they dwell on the bottom. They picked up parasites. And it's interesting that those that moved freely in the water were clean, but those that were stagnant were unclean. Water in the Bible is a representation of what? The Holy Spirit and also the Word of God. You sanctify your home by the washing of the water of the Word of God. You know what's interesting? Those who move through the Word of God are the ones that are fruitful. And those who are stagnant are unclean. Isn't that interesting? So those that moved through the water freely were clean, and those that were stagnant, you know, laid at the bottom, you know, the cat, you know, laid on the bottom, no good. We're not to eat any of those animals. Let's move here quickly through this portion. All clean birds you may eat. That's good. Chicken, turkey, praise the Lord. But these you shall not eat. The eagle, the vulture, the buzzard, the buzzard. I've never thought about a buzzard sandwich. How about you? It's never, never even gone through my thought process. I could hold to this, no problem. The red kite, the falcon, and the kite after their kinds. Every raven after its kind. Now, I think I told you guys this when I went through Leviticus. I have never shot or harmed anything in my life. I've never shot anything. I could shoot a raven. When I lived in the desert, these birds are like dogs. They're so big, right? And they used to come in my backyard and attack everything. And then, right? There's a big old black. Look at, I thought, man, if I had a gun, I would shoot them, okay? If you can hunt animals, you can hunt the ravens near my house anytime you want. But ravens were unclean animals. They were unclean. The ostrich, the short-eared owl, the seagull. Again, a seagull. They're dirty. They're disgusting. He says, don't eat those. Okay. No problem. The hawk after their kinds, the little owl, the screech owl, the white owl, the jackdaw, the carrion vulture, the fisher owl, the stork, the heron after its kind, the hoopy, and the bat. Now, the bat. I think a buzzard's probably more appetizing than a bat. Amen? A bat and cheese sandwich. I'm not thinking that's not good. Now, what's interesting is what are kind of animals are these? They're all what, for the most part? They're scavengers. They feed on dead flesh. And he says, those things that feed on dead flesh, don't eat those. Those are no good for you. Don't touch the things that feed on the dead, the things that feed on flesh. Unclean birds feed on flesh. But clean birds, like doves that they sacrificed, 
The dove in the Bible is a picture of what? Of whom? Holy Spirit. Remember Jesus being baptized? The Holy Spirit descended upon him like a, a dove. Now, so we know that there were clean animals and unclean animals, and it's interesting that the unclean animals fed on dead flesh, and the clean animals, in one case, the dove, was a representation of the Holy Spirit. So a very clear picture again for us that we are to feed on the Spirit and not on the flesh. We're to feed on those things which are godly and not on those things which are ungodly. He says, don't touch those things that eat dead things. They're no good for you. They're going to pick up disease and pass it on to you. Just like if we feed on our flesh, it's only going to bring us harm. Amen? But we're to feed on those things that feed the Spirit and not the flesh. Verse 19. Also, every creeping thing that flies is unclean for you. They shall not be eaten. So you can't have any insects. This is not a problem for me. Again, I'm not worried about eating any flies or anything else. Now, we know in Leviticus that there were some exceptions to the flying insects And there were locusts, crickets, and grasshoppers you could eat. And again, I'll let those go by, all right? But John the Baptist ate locusts and wild honey, right? Now, that was kosher. You could have locusts. You just couldn't have other insects that flew. You may eat all clean birds, verse 21. You shall not eat anything that dies of itself. So no roadkill. You can't have anything that dies in the ground, you're not supposed to eat it. Now, why couldn't they eat animals that died by themselves? If they walked along the road and they found a dead animal, they couldn't eat it. Which, again, for health reasons, right? Eating a dead animal, not a good thing, right? A little kid might want to. They don't know any better, but we're not doing that, right? Now, the reason was because they always had to do something to the animals before they ate them. They had to drain the what? They were not to drink the blood of the animals. And if an animal died of its own, then the blood would be you know, in its body and it was unable to drain it properly. So he said, don't even eat it. Don't eat anything like that because the blood is the life and it's not to be eaten. The Jews were also not to touch anything that had died, period. When they touched something that died, they were made unclean. And remember, if you were here in Leviticus, that if they touched a dead body or a dead animal, what did they have to do? They had to go outside the city for seven days and be cleansed before they could come back in. And so if they touched something that was dead, they had fellowship broken, and they had to go through a cleansing process to be restored. You know what? When you and I enter into fellowship with those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, those who do not know God, what do we do? We break fellowship with God. If we go and enter into fellowship with the world, we break fellowship with God. And we, too, need to repent to be restored back into a right relationship with the Lord. So he says, you're not to touch those things which are dead, because Again, they will harm you. And look what he says here. You, get, you may give it, now this is interesting. You're not to eat anything, but you may give it to the alien who is within your gates, that he may eat it. Or you may sell it to a foreigner. Thanks a lot. So if a Gentile happens by, dude, want some roadkill? I mean, you can, you can sell it to him. You're allowed to do that. You're allowed, you know why? Because they don't have the same standards that you do. They don't have the same standards for living that you and I do. As believers, and he's talking here in the case of the children of Israel, that you, he may eat it or you may sell it to a foreigner, for you are a holy people to the Lord. So you're set apart to God and your standards are different than the world. So the world can eat it, but you're not supposed to. You know what? The world can do things that you and I are not supposed to. Amen? The world is not the standard for us. Personal conviction. Let me just make it real clear. My personal conviction. I am never, ever, under any circumstances, period, ever, to drink alcohol. My conviction. 
As a pastor, I think it's very clear, 1 Timothy 3, that no pastor should ever drink alcohol. Now, can you as a believer have a glass of wine with dinner? That's between you and God. But let me tell you this, because it's okay with the world doesn't mean it's okay for us. And we need to make sure that we don't use our liberty and stumble our brother. If I was sitting, I won't even drink a non-alcoholic beverage of any kind that looks like alcohol. Why? Because somebody could walk in and see Pastor Dave drinking a virgin margarita or something and think I'm drinking alcohol and stumble people. Amen? So as believers, because it's okay for the world, it's not okay with us. And sadly, what Christians try to do today is say, well, but the world says it's okay, so why isn't it okay for us? The world says it's okay for me to sleep around, sleep with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. The world says it's okay for us to live together outside of wedlock. The world says it's okay to go out and drink and party. The world says it's okay for, my, you know, for me to raise my kids this way or for me to cheat on my taxes, for me to do that. And we have all these examples and we let the world be the standard. And God says, don't do that. The world is not the standard. God is. His word is. Amen? And so we see here, he's telling them, look, you can give it to them because for them it's fine, but your standard is different. And as Christians, our standard is different. Again, being transparent. Sometimes my kids struggle with their dad because I tell them, but all my friends can do it. I don't care. I don't care what all your friends can do. What does the Bible say? Amen? And what conviction has God given me as your dad? If all your friends can go do that, then that's, that's between them and the Lord. But you're not going to. And he says to them, you're not to eat that stuff. Give it to them. They, they have a different standard. Your standard is higher. I am the standard. Let's make God the standard in every aspect of life. Amen? The things that entertain us, make God the standard. If everybody else is watching it, so what? Would you take Jesus to that movie? Would you sit down with Jesus and watch that show? Would you take Jesus? If you wouldn't, don't go there. Amen? Because you're taking the Holy Spirit with you. Amen? He lives inside of you. We have a different standard than the world. Now look at this verse. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, all it meant was you're not to follow the pagan ritual where once a year they got together and they literally did this. And it was a fertility ritual that they did. But you know what's interesting? The Jews have taken this to an extreme. I don't know if you guys know a kosher diet today. You cannot have meat and cheese in the same meal or any dairy products. You know why? Because they're afraid you might accidentally get the calf of the cow who gave the milk that made the cheese. And this could be the, the baby of the cow. And so when you have a cheeseburger, that's not kosher, so you can't do that. You think I'm kidding. Go to Israel, find out they got cheeseburgers at McDonald's. They don't. Why? Because the kosher is you only eat meat or you only eat dairy and you don't mix the two. That has nothing to do with this verse. That's what, this is just saying don't enter into that pagan ritual where they did this gross and vile thing and they literally boiled a calf in its mother's milk. It's interesting the Jews even have separate dishes. If you go into a, a Jewish home that keeps to this, they have separate dishes. They have dairy dishes and they have meat dishes because they don't want to accidentally put a meat a piece of meat on a dairy dish that had some milk that was once on there or some cheese that was on there before and didn't get cleaned perfectly. And now they think when you put it in your stomach that you're literally churning it up and it's boiling in its mother's milk. That's foolishness. But see, again, what happens? You take the letter of the law instead of what it really means. And that's sadly what had happened. Okay, lastly, let's take a look. We've seen how it should change the way we mourn. It should change the way we obey God. Again, they're straining at a gnat there and swallowing a camel. And now we're going to look at the principles of tithing. Look at verse 22. You shall truly tithe 
all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. You shall truly tithe. The word tithe means one what? One-tenth. You shall truly tithe. He says, if this was a command by God in the Old Testament to give one-tenth of all you have. And he doesn't say you shall kind of tithe. He doesn't say you should do your best at tithing. He says you shall truly tithe. You know, God knows if his followers are truly giving to him with a cheerful heart and out of love for him. The Bible says that God loves a cheerful giver. You guys have heard me say this before. If you don't get, and the word for cheerful when God loves a cheerful giver is a hilarion. It's where we get the word hilarious. So if you can't give with hilarity, don't give. Because does God need your money? God, my father's got a cow on a thousand hills. He doesn't need your money. All the, guys, all the assistant pastors get mad at me when I tell you guys this, but I'm telling you anyway. God doesn't need your money. And if you can't give with a cheerful heart, don't. Okay? Because God will provide. He does. He's faithful. You know what God wants? He doesn't want your money. He wants your heart. Amen? And often our heart is reflected in our checkbook because the things that I spend money on are the things that are important to me. So when I give, I give because I love God and I want to, not to try to get something from Him, but because of what He's already done for me. He saved me. I'm going to heaven. Everything I own belongs to Him anyway, and all I'm doing is saying, Lord, it's all yours, and I'm going to give you the first fruits of what you've given me. They were commanded to do this every single year. They were to bring their their produce of the entire year, and they were to give that first tenth to the Lord. Now, I want to say this too. It's important that we not give so that we can get. That's an abuse in the church today. You ever see these guys on TV? Give you a seed offering. Just send it, right? Have you seen that? Just send it and write it. It's always send money to me. They believe in seed giving. Why don't they give money away? I've never figured that out. I want to call them up and say, man, why don't you plant your seed in my bank account? Right? But it's always send in your seed and believe, and then God will grow your seed. That is, that is so contrary to what God's heart is for giving. We don't give. If you give, and then have people come on there, I give my, I've made my $1,000 pledge, and the next day I won the lottery. Right? Have you seen these commercials? And so it's like they're giving so they can somehow finagle and make God give them stuff. I don't want stuff. I want God. Amen? I don't want the things that, and so when you give, you give to the Lord out of, with a cheerful giver out of what he's done for you, not to get back from God. We're not, we're not playing the lotto with God. Amen? Giving all we should and not holding back. And God knows your heart. We don't give to get. We give because he already has blessed us. And he tells us to test me in this and see. Verse 23. And you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide. The tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, your oil of the firstborn of your herds and the flocks. You may learn to fear the Lord your God always. You know what they were supposed to do? They were to take their tithe. They were to travel to wherever the tabernacle was. They were to give their tithes. But then they were to take a portion of it and sit down and have a feast before God symbolizing that they were sharing with the Lord and in fellowship with the Lord. Giving produces fellowship with God. When we give, we have greater fellowship with God. We do. Because it's, again, it's a, Lord, you're first in my life. Everything. In my time, when I get up in the morning, you're first. In my giving of my finances, you're first. Lord, it's all yours anyway. I'm not just living part of my life for you. It all belongs to you. So tithing was an act of worship, an act of fellowship, and an act of intimacy with the Lord. And then he says that that you may fear the Lord. It's interesting that when they tithe, again, it built an honor and a reverence for God. They came once a year. I, I don't know for sure, but I have an idea that this was a time they looked forward to. 
I truly believe that. They harvested their grain. They said, we get to go now to the tabernacle and have a feast with God. And they brought it, and they gave it to the Lord, and they enjoyed this feast, and they rejoiced in it, and they went home. And for, so for them, giving was a blessing. It was a get-to, not a have-to. It was a joy. And again, a paraphrase in the Living Bible puts it this way. The purpose of tithing is to teach you to always put God first in your life. You know, again, a habit that my parents taught me when I was a little boy, when they gave me my allowance. I remember when I was a little kid, and you'll know I'm old now, my allowance was a quarter. And that was pretty sweet, because I could buy five packs of baseball cards, because they were a nickel apiece back then. But my dad would always give me my allowance in two nickels and a, two dimes and a nickel, because he wanted to allow me the opportunity to learn to give. And so as a little boy, I would spend 20 cents on four packs of baseball cards, though there was a temptation to buy five, right? And then I would go to church on Sunday with my nickel in Sunday school when they came around with the little white church with the slit on top, right? I'd drop my nickel in there. And it was God's, it was my parents' way of teaching me that God comes first. And you know, when I first got my first job, what God put on my heart was, I write in my deposit for my check, and the first check I write is always to the Lord. And, and I remember when I first got married, I'd say, babe, I don't even want to write another check until I write that one first. Because I want to give him our first fruits. I want the first thing I have to go to God. Not last, not what's left, not pay all the bills and then give God. You know what? Do you think God's going to let you starve if you give to him first? He says, test me in this and see. Amen? And again, you know, if you've been here before, we don't talk about giving, but God has principles for giving. And we give him first, not what's left. Verse 24 through 26. But if the journey is too long for you, so you're not able to carry the tithe, or if the place where the Lord your God chooses to put His name is too far from you, when the Lord your God has blessed you, then you shall exchange it for money, take the money in your hand, and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses. And you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep, for wine or similar drink, for whatever your heart desires. You shall eat there before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household. Now again, if they had a long distance away, and remember, they had to give a tithe of their cattle and their grain. So this could be, you know, moving a huge amount of stuff. And the Lord said, if it's too far away, sell it and just bring the money to me. But when you get there, I don't want you to miss out on the feast. So take that money and buy what brings pleasure to you and sit down and have a feast with me of part of that offering that you give to me. And they all went, and look what it says, the, old, the whole household, what did they do? They rejoiced. So again, giving was a joy. It was a, it was a get-to, not a have-to. It was a blessing. And again, they purchased what their heart desire, desired, and they gave him what was his just due. And again, their heart's desire. God loves to bless his people. Too often people think God just doesn't want you to have things. If God keeps it from you, it's because it's bad for you. Amen? And too much of what is good can keep you from that which is best. Too often we're pursuing so much the things that are good and we can lose sight of that which is best. Verse 27, you shall not forsake the Levite who is within your gates for he has no part nor inheritance with you. The Levite was, is a representation of those who serve in full-time ministry. So when we give, part of what we give to is to support those who are serving God full-time. Because you guys are faithful to give, I am able to study the number of hours I'm able to study and be available to minister to you. And so are our assistant pastors. And if you didn't do that, I wouldn't be able to do that. And so because you're faithful and you do that, you're also, we're, we also, as a church, as a whole, all of us as individuals and as a whole, I think we support between 80 and 100 GFA missionaries. 
So those missionaries are supported, and they go out full-time and serve God, and that's only possible because those who are working give. And so the same is true here. He said, don't forget about the Levites. When you come and you give, make sure they're taken care of. Lastly, verse 28 and 29. At the end of the third year, you shall bring out the tithe of your produce of that year and store it up within your gates. Now, every third year, they took a special second offering. And this offering was stored, not taken to the tabernacle, but was stored within the gates of their local little city. And out of that, what were they supposed to do? It says in verse 29, And the Levite, because he has no portion nor inheritance with you, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who within your gates may come and eat and be satisfied that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. Now notice that who is this set aside for? It was for the orphans. The Bible says the pure and undefiled religion is to minister to the orphans and the widows. I thank God that we as a church support an orphanage in Haiti. Amen? That blesses me. That blesses me because that's pure and undefiled religion. The orphans and the widows. But I want you to notice something. Who are the ones that came and fed from that food? It was those who served in ministry full time. It was the orphans and the widows. It was not the lazy. Amen? Can I tell you something? That that's one of the things we get calls for more than you can imagine. Guy will show up. He's you know, young guy, perfect health, telling us how, well, I haven't worked for six months. And why not? The Bible says, a man who does not work shall not what? Eat. So, you know what? There's a lion in the street. There's a lion in the street. I can't get a job, right? No. We're, you know what? And here's the reality. I believe we're doing them more harm by helping them prop up their sin, by blessing them. And it says very clearly in the Bible, you're not supposed to do that. Now, I have to confess to you, initially I was a soft touch and I gave to everybody. I don't do that anymore. Because now I believe that God has clearly defined in my heart that we are not to bless laziness. Amen? And a lot of times what we'll say is, hey, you know what, you're out of work, fine. Go over here and do this and we'll help you. And again, you know, we have husbands and wives in our church that are both working really hard and something dra- dramatic happens. Somebody gets laid off and, those, and we want to absolutely help those people 100%. Amen? We should absolutely help them. But if we got two people sitting home eating bonbons watching cable, Right? Or you got a guy sitting out in the mall with a sign up going, I'm, you know, I need money for cigarettes and alcohol. I'm not giving you a dime. Amen? We were at the vet's hall. We had people coming in every day, every Sunday, right? Dude, you think you could hook me up uh, with a job? But not with money. Amen? I'll give $5,000 to help somebody get right with God, right? If they need to go to drug and alcohol rehab. But I'm not giving 50 cents to help perpetuate somebody's sin. Amen? And sometimes people get out, why, why don't we help the homeless more? You know what? I have a burden for the homeless. I want to reach out to the homeless, but I'm not going to reward laziness because God tells us not to. Look at this text. Who's it for? The fatherless, the orphans, not the 25-year-old guy that's in perfect health and just doesn't want to work. Amen? As you can probably tell, one of Pastor Dave's pet things is laziness. It's interesting. I was down at the mall with my son just recently, and I was getting his new glasses, and and, he's, and, we're, and we had to go there during the morning, and he missed school because he can't see very well. It's all without, and it broken. And he said, Dad, these people down here, man, they're, they're all laying around, and they're sleeping on the street. And I said, Son, let me tell you what all these guys have in common. One word. He said, What? I go, They're lazy. And he goes, Really? I go, Yeah. That's why I want you to do your homework. <laughs> this is what laziness produces. Right? I want you to be diligent. I don't care about the science fair project. I just want you to be diligent so you don't end up being lazy like this. Now, that may be harsh to some people, 
But that's biblical. Amen? That we're not to reward that kind of behavior. So, in closing, living all your life for the Lord. Children of God are to be different in every aspect of life. When people meet you, they should be blown away by how different you are. When people met Jesus, did they say he's just like the world? When they met the apostles, did they think, do you think they thought Apostle Paul was like everybody else? John the Baptist, any of them? And you know, there's a move in the church today, we've got to be more like the world. I say absolutely not. We need to be less like the world. Amen? We need to reach people by being unique, being different, set apart to God. So we're to be set apart to God in the way that we mourn. We grieve, but not as those without hope. We're to be set apart to God in the realization that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. We need to learn to trust God even in the areas we don't understand. And we need to, again, be set apart to God in how we give. Give cheerfully out of a love for God and what He has done for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You that even these words written several thousand years ago apply to every single life in this room. Help us, Lord, to live lives set apart to You. Help us, Lord, not to compromise our faith and be like the world, but, Lord, to pursue you with our whole hearts. And, Lord, I do pray that when we face death, that we would not mourn like the world does, that we would grieve but not as those without hope. Lord, that we would trust you in areas we don't understand. And, Lord, that we would give to you the first fruits of our time, of our gifts, of our finances, of all that we have. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we worship you. You're a great and awesome God, and we cannot wait to see you face to face. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Let's